And I ask you and invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's word to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We are making a turn as we march through this wonderful gospel and looking at what this gospel has been building up to, namely the final week of Jesus's life, his crucifixion. How do we go from people clamoring in the street, shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him. We make that turn as we come to Luke chapter 22. I invite you to join me as we read together. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the masters of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And he went, and and they went, and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to him in prayer one more time and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage that we have This is a passage that we would think would cause us all to panic as we see the terror that's in. But I pray that you would help us to see the encouragement that we can find from it. Help me to preach this, your word, well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One sin that Satan is never guilty of The sin that Satan never commits is the sin of laziness. Satan is always at work. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that he is on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The best victim that he is looking for is the one who is not fully surrendered to Christ. That's what we see here in this passage today. We look at Judas, whose name is now synonymous with betrayal. And we can look at this passage and think that this might be where things are going wrong, where things got off the rails in Jesus's ministry. If only he had conducted the membership interviews more carefully. 
Perhaps he might have been able to weed out Judas and keep these things from happening. But that's not what we find here. What we find is Christ's incredible control over all things. Indeed, over Satan himself. Judas was not unexpected. As we saw from Psalm 41, a figure like this is anticipated. Jesus had predicted multiple times over the course of his ministry that he would suffer and die. And this is being put into focus. And we're seeing exactly how this works. It's a rather privileged perspective that we get to peel back the layer of what we can see with our eyes, flesh and blood, and see the spiritual reality that exists behind it. More importantly, as we'll take a look, we'll see how to resist those evil desires and spirits that would seek to work in our lives as well. So, we are looking at our two points today, which is Satan's schemes are sometimes successful. That's the first point. The second point is, but Jesus is always in control. Yes, even over the schemes of the devil. How does this work? Well, let's take a look and see Luke chapter 22. He sets the scene for us by talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration in the Jewish community. And what this meant was it was to remember about how they were suddenly called out of Egypt, to where they didn't even have time for their bread to rise before they left. They would have put it in the night before, but it was time to quick bind up the bowls and get out of town because God was delivering his people from Egypt. So because of that, they would eat bread without any leaven or yeast, as we would know it today, and eat this for a week. This would start with the first day of this Feast of Unleavened Bread was called the Passover. Since those were done together and indeed followed the very next day, oftentimes the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread was used synonymously. So here, the Passover is starting out. And this is a very significant marker that Luke is writing about. It is not by accident that Jesus is having this occur around Passover. Passover was the, the marker of Jewish historical identity. They were the people whom God delivered from Egypt. And the final plague against Egypt when God struck all of the firstborn of the house that didn't have the lamb's blood over the doorposts, this was their marker of deliverance, that God had passed over them, kept their firstborn alive, but this came at the cost of a lamb's life. As we'll see next week, Jesus is going to invest this Passover with a very deep meaning. But that, of course, we'll save for next time. For right now, we're going to look at, with irony, as some commentators have pointed out, of what these chief priests and scribes are doing. Passover was meant to be a celebration for the preservation of their lives. But here they are scheming and trying to figure out how they can take life, even during this most holy of celebrations. But see, the chief priests and the scribes, they have a problem. Is Jesus is really popular right now. They want to get rid of him, but the people love him. 
He is out and ready for the taking right there in the temple. He teaches there every day, as we saw last week. But they can't just go up and arrest Israel's newest celebrity. The people love him too much because they feel that he is going to be the one to ascend the throne and kick out the Romans. So what are they to do? If only they had an inside man who could tell them, where does Jesus lodge on the Mount of Olives when he leaves the temple? Well, we have this one step forward, and that is Judas. You see, they need Judas because even though, as one commentator pointed out, these are supposed to be the rulers, the authorities over this people, they were afraid of their people, showing they didn't have any real control at all. Instead, the control is being given to another, but we'll see that in a moment. Let's now focus our attention on verse 3. Here it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. This is a heartbreaking verse to read this. But it's also, there is a level of confusion as to what does it mean to say that Satan entered into Judas's heart. Is this meaning that Satan has possessed him in some way, or he is able to control Judas's actions to do this sort of horrible, horrific thing? Or is this, as other commentators point out, that this is a satanic influence over Judas's heart? A lot like what we see in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira want to lie to God about how much their property was sold for to make it look like they were more generous than they were. Peter looks at them and says, why has Satan filled your heart to do this sort of a thing? Really, the scriptures doesn't exactly spell out what this means or how this works. But at the very least, we do know that Judas is responsible for his actions. He's held responsible. When later on in our text, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, he's not saying one of you have been possessed by Satan and has done this thing against your will. This is something that Judas had wished to do at some level. He has been influenced by this enemy of God's people. But he was not without resource. Turn with me, if you will. To James, the book of James, chapter 4. We are given an insight as to how to resist this Satan, this devil. Here in James, chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 1. And I think in these first few verses, we're going to see something of what perhaps is filling Judas's heart and what he was missing to make this invitation to ask Satan into his heart possible. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And here's the key. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here, I think what we see in these first four or five verses of James, I think might be what's going on in Judas's heart. We see Judas has a thing for money. We were to look in other passages of the scriptures uh, over in John. It says that Judas was the keeper of the money bag and he would often help himself to this money bag that was meant for the poor and for the ministry of Jesus and keeps some of it for himself. We see perhaps greed that might be a part of it. Perhaps he was expecting that Jesus would be a political Messiah and turned out not to be and was willing to get rid of him. We don't really know what was Judas's motivation. We only know that it must not have been true of him what we see in James chapter 4. He was not submitted to God. He did not resist the devil because the devil did not flee. He, whether he realized it or not, was giving an open invitation to Satan to enter into his heart. And it's a good idea when we encounter passages like this is to instead of saying, well, thank goodness I'm not like Judas, is to instead ask ourselves, how might it be possible that I could be Judas? How might it be that I could end up in his position? One of our commentators, Philip Ryken, convictingly asks and goes on an exercise as to how this might be possible. He asks, when are we in danger of betraying our Lord? It's when we spend more time thinking about what we do not have than praising God for what we do have. We are in danger of betraying our Lord and we want him to do something different for us than what he thinks is best. And when we think that we are so strong spiritually that we could never betray him at all. These are searching questions. Now, is he, and am I saying that you can lose your salvation? Was Judas truly converted, but somehow sinned enough to the point where he fell away? No, that's not what the scripture is saying. It's not what Riken is saying. We can prove that by looking into the scriptures. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Listen to the assurance that Jesus gives to his people starting in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
This is the assurance that no one can snatch anyone out of the Father's hand, including yourself. After all, we were not the ones that placed ourselves into the Father's hand. He was the one that picked us up and put us there. We couldn't get ourselves in. We can't get ourselves out either. Another passage that we could turn to would be Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that Christ is the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. God leaves no unfinished projects in the garage. Anything that the Lord starts, he will finish. When the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, what can I do to be saved? And they say, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Not you might be saved if you can hold it together long enough. It's you will be saved. So we can't lose our salvation. Besides, it's not about sinning in some big enough way to make you lose your salvation. Judas was not the only disciple to sin. Other disciples had made their own mistakes as well. For example, Peter, right after he makes the announcement and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you for your eyes can see this. Your father, the father's revealed this to you. And Jesus goes on and talks about how he needs to go to the cross. And Peter takes him aside and says, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus looks at Peter and calls him, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus calls you Satan, you have made a mistake. Here he's trying to talk Jesus out of the whole purpose for his coming. And we look at Peter as well and see that he denies Jesus three times. So what's the difference? What's the warning that we should take in then? You say, it's like, okay, well, if I'm a Christian and I can't lose my salvation, then what would be the point? Why should I worry about my sin? Well, that's what we need to take a look at here. If we look at our sin as something that's minor, as something that's no big deal, as something that, well, I'm keeping this little area for myself. I'll serve God over here, but this little thing is for myself. If that's our attitude, then we might not be Christians at all. This is a call to self-examination. When Judas was given the choice between money and the Savior, he chose the money. And if we find our hearts continuously turned away from Christ, we should not assume that we're following after him. This doesn't mean Christians don't sin. They do. The difference is, what do you do after you've sinned? What do you do when you realize that you are in danger of betraying your Lord? And it's the difference between Judas and Peter. Both of them sinned. Both of them denied Jesus in some way. But Peter came back to Christ, he sought his forgiveness, and found hope. Judas did not. In fact, there was one preacher whose name is Colin Smith, who said this very provocatively. Listen to what he 
his take. He says, the sin that sent Judas to hell wasn't betraying Jesus. It was losing hope that he could be forgiven. That's a really powerful statement. It wasn't the betrayal that sent Judas to hell. It was his loss of hope that Jesus could forgive. That's the point. When we sin and we think that there is no hope for us to find forgiveness, then we'll take matters into our own hands. And there is no salvation in our own hands. Judas couldn't deal with the guilt that he had, so he went out and killed himself. Peter also couldn't deal with his guilt either. So he came and sought to Christ, sought Jesus, and he was forgiven. That's what we find here. Judas didn't go to hell because of suicide. Some people think that's the unforgivable sin because you can't ask forgiveness for it. That's, that's not the case. Judas went to hell because he never came to Christ. He was never surrendered to Jesus. So I think as we look in this passage, the question we should ask ourselves is, what does my sin? How do I register this? Yes, there, are, there is a difference. There is a level of heinousness to sins. Some sins are worse than others. You can look at a few different passages to show this where Jesus makes reference to the fact that there, that this, there is a hierarchy of sins in John 19, 11, Matthew 11, 20 through 24, and Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 6, 13, and 15. So there is degrees of sin, but there is no such thing as a no big deal sin. For instance, if we look at Judas, here we see greed operating in his heart. Most of the time, we don't really think about greed as being a sin. After all, our whole economy runs on that, doesn't it? But this is something that we shouldn't look at lightly. We don't want to look at this as no big deal. But instead, we should come to Christ and submit to him. Because if we don't, then we are inviting Satan into our heart. We are welcoming influence from evil to guide our actions. So, when I say coming to Christ, who, it is, who is it that we're coming to? That's what we're going to see as we look into our second point. While we have been seeing that Satan's schemes are sometimes successful, we find that Jesus is always in control, even over those schemes. We'll look at this as we go on in verse 7. Here we come to the day of the unleavened bread where the Passover has to be sacrificed. And here we see Jesus is not being swept up into some sort of scheme unawares. This isn't something that Jesus made a misstep about, but he is indeed setting up everything as we go. Here, he sends his disciples to go and prepare the Passover. Now, during Passover, it was celebrated in Jerusalem. As people wanted to be close to this city. And the way that this was done is this would be celebrated in homes. But Jerusalem could hold about maybe 30,000 people. But during Passover, it would swell up to over 100,000 people that would come to the city. People would try their best in their little homes to host people, the pilgrims that were traveling. 
But for the most part, they just simply couldn't contain everybody, so they would actually politically extend the borders of Jerusalem out to where the people were so everyone could have a feast within. So here it's day of Passover, and Jesus is sending in his disciples to go find an empty room. And it's there. How do they know what room to go into? It's like, well, you're going to go into the city and find a man carrying a jar of water. Now, most of us don't think that that would be anything unusual, but it is. Because carrying water in an earthen pot was usually a female's job. But this is a man that's doing this work. So that would be unusual. And the fact that they'd be able to see this man as soon as they walk into Jerusalem with 100,000 other people milling around. And they manage to see this guy that's coming in there. And he's going to walk right to the house as the one that has everything open. It's almost like he owns and controls all of these things. Here he is putting together this room. And in verse 13, they went and they found it just as he told them, and he prepared the Passover. Preparing the Passover would have been something of a lengthy process. They would have needed to, John and Peter would have needed to take their lamb, stand in line at the temple for the priest to kill it, drain of its blood, and sacrifice it and present it back to them for roasting. They would come back, set the table, make sure that the unleavened bread was there and the wine and the lamb, and everything was all set for Jesus to make a transformation of what this Passover would mean. It seems as though, as one commentator put it, it says that Jesus was as determined as Satan that he would die, that he was going to be sure that this would take place. All of this is under Jesus' control. Even Judas? Yes, actually. Look with me in the book of Acts the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. You see the continuing history that Luke writes. Look at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Peter is standing and talking. And he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted. It needed to be done. Judas was under the oversight and watch of God that this betrayal would take place. Does this mean that what, Jesus, that what Judas did was right? No. Judas still sinned. Judas did what was wrong. Are we also saying that Judas was just a helpless victim of God's sovereignty and is being dragged along to betray Jesus as he's kicking and screaming and wishing that he wouldn't? No, that's not the case either. He is acting with what Judas wanted to do. And Jesus is able to use that for his own ends. Doesn't qualify perfectly, but an analogy, it comes from my own parenting of my son. My son hates getting dressed in the morning and will go limp to keep me from being able to get a shirt on him. But I have discovered that this limping action is actually quite helpful for things that button in the back because I can then sling him over my leg and make it easier to accomplish my will. Now, is his attitude something that I approve of? No. Is this something I am forcing him to do? Not at all. But is it something that I can use knowing he's going to do that 
I can use for, to accomplish my will? Yes. And it works the same way with God. God is not the author of sin. He can't. It's against his nature. Just like it's against my nature to flap my arms and fly. It's something that God cannot do. He is by definition holy and righteous, free of sin. He can't be the author of it. But he's not out of control of it. And we can see this all through Scripture. Would that we had time to go through all those things. But just to mention one of them with Joseph and his brothers. Sold him into slavery in Egypt. Was that the right thing to do? No. It's not right to sell your family members into slavery. But God was working with that, with the desires of his brothers as they stood to get him into Egypt, to put him in Pharaoh's court, to set up things to save the world from famine. God is not out of control, even over those who would seek to betray him. And you say, it's like, okay, well, we can, we can get behind Judas. Judas is uh, another human being, a lot like us. We can see how we could be guided. But what about Satan? Is Jesus in charge of Satan as well? And the answer is yes. He's in charge over Satan as well. If we were to skip down in our chapter here in Luke 22 and jump to verse 31, we'll cover this as we get there, but I just want to focus on it for now. Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Look what Satan's doing here. He has to ask permission to do what he wants to do. Jesus is going to grant Satan that permission to sift Peter like wheat. But look what happens. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is exactly what happens in Peter's life. He falls to the temptation, but he turns again. Christ controlling this from beginning to end. We could also look at the book of Job. All the horrible things that happen to Job, Satan has to ask permission for each and every one. And God always put a limit on what Satan could do. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil and has him on a leash and is in control of all of these things. So why, then, if God's in control of Satan, why doesn't he just end Satan? Make it easy. Poof, disappear. Satan's gone. Why doesn't he do that? Um, I've been working through this book, Providence, and you all are just going to have to deal with the fact I'm going to have to quote it many, many times throughout these times. It's a very long book, so we're going to have to deal with this a lot. He lists out several reasons for why God keeps Satan working and allowing him to exist. My favorite one that he has is because God defeats Satan with Satan. How does he do that? Christ needs to die for our sins. How is he going to die? He needs to be betrayed. How does he need to be betrayed? By Judas. How is Judas going to get the inspiration to be betrayed? By Satan. Satan's working his own destruction. Piper makes mention of it, and he says, if this makes Satan look like a fool, it should. But be careful, he goes on. Every sin you commit is equally idiotic and self-destructive. That's where we find ourselves too. God is working always, even with Satan. 
So what's our takeaway from all this? We've read this passage. We see Jesus is in control of all things, even those that betray. So what should we take away from it? What difference does this make in our lives? Well, the first is that we need to take this, as I have said earlier, and use this as a time to examine ourselves. When I say examine yourselves, this doesn't mean, this doesn't necessarily need to be a daily paranoia of checking your spiritual pulse, assuming and just with an obsession looking at one's salvation. But it's helpful every few months or so or whatever that looks like for your life to check in and say, where do I stand with Christ? Am I growing in holiness? Am I growing in my love for Christ? Yes, there are going to be setbacks. It's going to look a lot like a stock graph. It's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go up, and going to go down. But the Christian life is a general trend of going upwards. Not from your power, because the Holy Spirit's working in you. So if you're seeing progress in your salvation, sinning less and hating it more when you do sin, this is a wonderful assurance that Christ is working in your life. But if you're seeing a pattern of, I'm involving myself in this sin more and more, I'm loving this sin more and more as each year goes by, and I'm less and less bothered by it. That's a warning sign, something we should pay attention to, because apparently it's possible to stand and hear the voice of Jesus himself for three years and betray him. Just because we've been in church all our lives does not mean that we're following after Christ. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Does he make a difference in your Monday through Saturday? These are the things we ask ourselves because we don't want to be Judas and be lost at the end. We want to seek out our Savior and go to him as Peter's done. I think another takeaway that we can look at this passage is to be prepared that betrayal can happen. Unfortunately, there are many examples that we can look at in church history. Those that we thought were following after Christ, but in the end, were not. Paul makes mention of them in one of his letters of Demas, who fell in love with this present world and left the work of Christ. We've seen this in Church news, as I'm sure you all have heard the story of Rabbi Zacharias, who for all intents and purposes looked like a bedrock solid Christian. And in the end, with all the revelations that had come out, it was clear that he was not. Now, it's appropriate to be grieved for those things. It's a terrible thing when we see dishonor brought onto Christ's name. But this doesn't have to be surprising. This doesn't have to be faith-rocking. Because it's happened here. Jesus warned us that even among the 12, we could find this occur. So we look carefully at our hearts. We pray for one another. We don't assume one another. As I said when we were taking our membership vows, this Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. We all have blind spots, things that we can't see. We need each other, not in a critical and judgmental way of pointing out each other's sins, not trying to play, play, snipe the sinner, but it is a means of 
coming together, walking alongside one another and say, hey, here's an area that I'm praying for you about. Is there something you see in my life? Let's work together to make sure that we are following after Christ. This can apply to other people. I think finally a third application that we can draw from this is if you have experienced betrayal, Christ understands. Jesus has been betrayed by those who ate the bread of his table, by those who followed after him. And we can think, I was like, okay, well, he's in charge of this betrayal, but what about mine? The Lord was behind and is sovereign over the hurts that you've experienced as well. This doesn't mean that what the person did to you was right. It was not. But it doesn't mean that now God's been backed into a corner. Oh, one of my children has been betrayed. Now what am I going to do? This person's thrown off my path of life for them. Can't be done. God is working through all of your trials, even the person that has hurt you profoundly. If God can work through Judas, he can work through your betrayer as well. That's what we, that's how we can look at this passage with hope. We're not dealing with a God who is out of control, disorganized, flying by the seat of his pants, trying to figure out how to get your life and cobble it back together from the destruction that someone's wreaked upon it. No. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it doesn't make your life a lot harder. But what it does mean is that God is going to work through that. Might take a while to see that. Might have to go through a lot of hurt in order to see why. Maybe you'll never see why. But know that God's not surprised. And know that you're not alone. Christ understands what that feels like. He's experienced it personally. And if we're really honest with ourselves, he's experienced it from us as well. We've betrayed Christ in our sins. He's forgiven us. And that and that alone can put us on the path to say, I'm going to trust with what Christ has done. Working with him to have hope to move forward from this betrayal instead of letting that define your life. That's what this passage shows us. God is in control of every little thing and he will use it for his glory and for your ultimate good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the goodness that we receive from your hand and also the hardship that we receive. Lord, you are behind everything that we experience. And you're using it for your good, for your glory and for our good. I pray that you would help us to see that. I pray that you would allow us to look with hope beyond our circumstances, whatever they may be. And I ask that we would find clarity and hope in your word. Lord, I also pray for any soul that may be here who might be thinking that Maybe they're a Judas. Maybe they haven't fully 
submitted their hearts to you. Maybe their hearts are vulnerable to Satan. I ask that you would fill them today, that you would show them there is hope in you, that they can find forgiveness if they repent of their sin and put their trust in you and ask that they would be fully submitted to you to be able to resist the devil, follow after you. So in Jesus' name, I ask these things, amen.